the human brain loves things that come in threes. So three word slogans are really memorable. If you think like books often come, well, you've got your a beginning, a middle and an end. Often they're kind of three storylines or three key characters. Even in sport, you've got three people on the podium. For some reason, we just love the number three. And I thought, well, if slogans are catchy and get people's attention that are three words, well, how can I utilize this for myself? And I decided that my self-talk should be kind of channeled to having these sayings that were three words long, which are, you know, different mantras that I use essentially in different situations. And this is something that became pretty powerful. So going back to working towards London 2012, realizing that was my big end goal, I decided that was going to be my mantra was London 2012. Three words that I would say to myself when I was having those doubts that reminded me why I was doing what I was doing. Welcome to the Business Mastermind podcast with business strategist, speaker and author Gavin Preston. Tap into this meeting of minds between everyday business people on their journey to master business growth. Join them as they share strategies, insights and shortcuts to help you survive and thrive in business and life as you scale your business and achieve a bigger impact. Hi, Gavin here. Episode 90 of the Business Mastermind podcast and the fourth in our mini-series, Keep Your Boat Afloat, Business Survival Guide in COVID-19 Times. How are you? I hope you're staying strong. I hope you're staying well and looking after your family. You know, integral to our physical health is, of course, our mental health and our mindset. And today, we're chatting with para-Olympian Neil Faki. He shares his story of dealing with major setbacks, including how we compete at the highest of levels in sport whilst being partially sighted, and also how he lost everything and his dream was taken away from him for competing in uh, London 2020 Olympics and his story of coming back share with you some powerful tools that he's refined and got working to him from to, to create a really strong mindset to help him compete at the very highest of levels. These are going to be very healthy and very useful to you during the current times. So straight into my conversation now with Neil Fucking. Hello and welcome to the Business Mastermind podcast today as a special uh, mini series that we're doing uh, aligned with uh, the work I'm doing around Keep Your Boat Afloat, uh, the business survival guide through you know, the challenging times around coronavirus. I'm chatting with Neil Faki. You know, he's a professional cyclist, uh, para-Olympian, uh, part-time performance coach. Neil, welcome to the Business Mastermind podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. So do you want to introduce yourself, a little bit about your sporting background and achievements, and and then I'd love you to share your story with the listeners. Yeah, so um, yeah, I am a, a full-time cyclist. Uh, I actually come from a, a track and field background, uh, one and 200 meters, but I transferred into cycling just over a decade ago now. Um, I didn't have much success in my previous sport, but cycling has been a uh, very good to me, it's safe to say. So I'm a, a one-time Paralympic champion. I won one in London, 2012, 14-time um, world champion and four-time uh, Commonwealth champion as well and, and current double world record holder in my event. So I'm very much a, a sprint-based cyclist. And the interesting thing is I'm visually impaired. So you imagine riding a bike as someone who can't see very well is obviously quite daunting. Um, the way we get around that is I ride on a tandem bike with a, a fully sighted pilot they call them on the front so they do the steering whereas uh, we both do the pedaling um and yeah so that's um, that's kind of my a very short summation on my my kind of sporting background but as i'm 
getting on a bit. Um, still successful, but you have to start looking towards the future. I've started working into the world of, of performance business coaching as well, because it's a world that I find there's a lot of similarities between, between sport and business. And um, a lot of the insights I've kind of picked up over the years, I feel can kind of be applied to a business world as well, where everyone's trying to, you know, I do the opposition and, uh, you know, you're working towards these long-term goals and it's, it's this kind of similar approach to things. And that's something that really excites me. Uh, most certainly. And it's there, uh, there, there are lessons we're going to hear some of now some of the sort of key takeaways specifically around mindset about how transferable uh, they are to the to the world of business. You know, the, the world of business is challenging to start off with, as indeed, of course, is the world of sport. Um, and the challenges that we're finding ourselves in now in the midst of sort of the coronavirus uh, pandemic uh, is, is uncharted waters, isn't it? It's unprecedented. And what I really wanted to drill into in a conversation with you, Neil, was about mental resilience, mindset, how when stuff is kind of thrown at you and you're still focused on a goal or an objective and you, you kind of your playing field has just been completely shifted or changed, how you can go about picking yourself up and looking after your mental health and still making positive progress. Yeah, I've got a, and you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily similar to, to obviously the world of coronavirus, which is just something we've never really experienced before, but I guess from my own sport, the um, sporting career, the real kind of the big change moment came back in 2008. So up until that point, I was a, a full-time athlete. I was, as I say, in athletics, track and field. And I went to the Beijing Games um, to race in the one in 200 meters. And I, I just made my way into that team. I was, you know, I was a successful athlete, but not necessarily a real medal contender. So making the team for me was this huge achievement at the time. And that was my first Paralympic Games. And, you know, the instant I walked in uh, to the Paralympic Village where, where the athletes and coaches stay um, in Beijing, you know, I was just overawed and fell in love with the Paralympic Games. Um, it's this hugely diverse place where you've got every nation on the globe pretty much represented, all with various disabilities on show. And it's just this huge amount of energy and excitement about it. And as I say, I just fell completely in love with it. In terms of my competition out there, um, I came ninth in both my events, the top eight making the final. So it was disappointing for me. But at that point, I knew that four years time, we had the London Paralympics in 2012 coming up. And, you know, the thought of going to a home Paralympic Games was just immense. And that was my huge, huge goal that I'd set. And I thought, I need to get back, get into training and really set this as my target that I need to be there. I can't afford to be watching on TV. You know, this is this could be the crowning moment in my career. Um, and so I came back, back home to, to Aberdeen and, um, you know, I was just getting ready to, to start aiming for that big occasion, working out how I was going to go about it. And I got a phone call from my manager at the time at British Athletics. And essentially what was said was, we don't think you have the potential to make it. We're stopping your funding with immediate effect. Wow. And in that minute, that was it. My, my whole world came crashing in, you know, just everything done. Um, wow. And at that point, you still got this big goal in your head that London 2012 is what I wanted to make, but it's gone. And at that point, I'd love to say I, I instantly bounced back and things went great. But reality is I kind of sunk into a bit of a depression for a few months um, and realized I kind of needed to get on with life. And everyone's saying, you know, you need to apply for a job, kind of just move on, put it behind you. So I started applying for jobs, um, just anything really, kind of secretarial work. I, I had a degree in physics actually from a few years before, but you know, I just needed something. Yeah. Um, applied for jobs 
at the university and I kept getting knocked back and you know the usual sort of replies that there's lots of people applying for it there's a lot of competition you're overqualified you're underqualified no experience these sorts of things but I became aware that often in interviews I was being asked um, how do you think your disability is going to affect work and it hadn't really occurred to me that it might be an issue that people deem my disability might be a problem and I was just getting knocked back after knockback and ended up down the job center signing on and, you know, just hit that real rock bottom of not exercising, eating too much. So going from this very athletic person to suddenly being overweight, depressed with no real hope at all. And it was just the absolute low point. But underneath that all, I still had this kind of niggling thing of London 2012. Um, and I kind of had a day where I thought, I kind of woke up one morning. I don't know why that morning I suddenly had a bit more inspiration, but I thought, you know what? I'm not necessarily done yet. So I decided to research all the sports that you could do as a visually impaired person at the Paralympics and decided I'm going to try all of them until I find one I might just be good enough at that I can make it on the team and get to London. I'll find a way. Um, and it was cycling that I've always been a fan of and I decided to to try first. And rather than getting in touch with the, the Paralympic squad and saying, you know, I used to be an athlete. Can I come and try? I thought I need to do beforehand if I'm, if I'm good enough. Right. So I called up the, the velodrome at Manchester, signed up for what's known as a taster session. Anyone can go along and, and do that. Um, I didn't tell them I couldn't see very well, just in case they didn't let me have a go. Right. Unfortunately, you know, I, I kept my distance from everyone else. I managed to stay upright <laughs> yeah. and get around the velodrome. So always yeah. good. And um, at the end of the session, there was a guy warming up for the following session, which happened to be a, a Great Britain cycling session. And I had my bag from Beijing on, so it said Beijing 2008 on the back. And he saw it and got chatting to me and said, you know, asked me about what I did. And he said, oh, I used to be an Olympian. I've just changed over to the Paralympic squad. I'm what's known as a pilot. I'm looking for a visually impaired guy to ride on the back of a tandem. Do you know anyone? Oh, my and goodness. Wow. That moment was just a, well, yeah, I might know someone, you know? <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, just um, one of those situations where being in the right place at the right time. For sure. Huge. And, you know, it, it wasn't a, a quick transition from there, but obviously he helped step up the process, got me a trial with the team, and I, I was able to perform well and had made my way onto the, the squad the following year. Um, and suddenly... London 2012 was a reality. Um, kind of cutting the story a, a little bit short for the, the following years, things went very well and, and I made it to London. And the ultimate result was that I came away with a gold and a silver medal from a Games where I thought I had no chance of making it at all. So Fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, going into the things that kind of got me that mindset, um, I think I kind of woke up almost on that lowest of days and remembered that that kind of desire, that one big goal that I had in mind, that although the situation had changed, that end goal was still in place. Um, and I just had to find an alternative way of, of getting there. And there's quite a few sort of mindset tools I learned in the process to get there that, you know, I'm happy to share with, with, with your guys, uh, your followers. And um, it's those sort of tools that I think got me to that start line in the first place um, and got me away from, from rock bottom. And, uh, I've helped kind of push my career on over the past decade as well to go from that victory in London and keep progressing throughout the years, even though I've obviously had that great success, but still 
kind of keeping that hunger to find new goals and new challenges, which is something it's, it's always been challenging, but you know, it's, it's worked so far. It, it would have, it would have been so easy for you to wallow in, in, in the sort of the, uh, the bottom of depression and throwing your own pity party about, tw- you know, why me? Uh, I was so close, but yet so far I've lost everything that I stood for in terms of my goal as an athlete, etc. Um, was it, you know, that inner just gut feel, just innate vision and desire of 2012 that just you just couldn't let go of that helped bring you back out to that the lowest of low times? Yeah, definitely to to an extent. Um, and I'd love to say that, you know, I wasn't someone who walled in self-pity, but there was time there where, where I did. And it did take a kind of going through those phases of blaming other people for for kicking me off funding and, you know, you know, I was kind of, there was a why me element to it. And I had to go through that, I think, first. Um, but having that such a huge goal and such a huge target was definitely, it just kept that spark alive throughout that. Um, but there were Did it make you more determined days. to prove them wrong? Uh, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people, I kind of think there, there are quite a few different types of, of motivation and negative thoughts as a form of motivation can be very strong, that kind of emotional drive. Um, and it's something I've used throughout my life, to be honest, going back to my visual impairment that many times there've been people who've kind of suggested you can't do things because of your disability. And I've always had that kind of attitude of, well, we'll see about that, you know, like, um, and it it can get you quite far, just that emotion of proving people wrong. And I'm not saying it's always the healthiest way to approach things by any means, but it is very powerful if you use it in the right way. And I definitely did. Um, and it's still, I mean, it's still something I guess I'm doing because I often use that quote that from that phone call of, we don't think you have the potential to make it to London 2012. And I still use that in presentation. So I guess I'm, I'm still trying to tell the world that, you know what, they were wrong. But in reality, what they did for me was actually the best thing that could have ever happened. But you had the flexibility of, of you know, still focusing on the goal and being determined and absolute about the goal, but being flexible to to which discipline that you use to enable you to achieve that goal. Yeah, and that took some kind of self-reflection, to be honest. Um, so, for instance, within sport uh, at British Athletics, we did a lot of sort of physical tests um, to see how, how you fare against sort of the team as a whole. Um, and that's across able-bodied and the Paralympic teams as well. And I always ranked really high on those tests. So although I was never running as fast as perhaps other people were, in these tests, I was performing much better. And that kind of had that little seed in my head that thought, well, maybe this isn't the sport I'm best at, but I am physically strong. I am fit. I'm, you know, I am capable of doing something. And I always thought, well, why am I not running quicker? Um, it t- turns out probably just I was in the wrong sport, to be honest. And, okay, I, you know, I can't run that quick, but... <laughs> put me on a bike and things change so i think it was that reflection looking back at what actually am i good at um i'm i'm quite a small guy i'm only i'm only five foot two believe it or not so when you look at the physiology of of runners that you're kind of fighting a losing battle from the get-go there on a bike that totally flips around actually being small can be beneficial to be more aerodynamic and things so again that reflection of what are my strengths what am i good at and just that different perspective like what could I apply that to? Um, and it all kind of clicked when I, when I, when I look back now, I can see it and I probably didn't at the time so well, but just that reflection and, and realizing that even in the lowest points, you do have strengths and um, there are always things that you can, 
you can turn to your advantage. Um, it's just all, always a lot easier said than done, of course. How did you deal with doubt? Because, you know, you had a major setback and you were having to start off, not quite from uh, zero, because you were a professional athlete and, and and evidently the fact that you were carrying the bag with the Beijing Olympics on opened a door that for others it, that wouldn't necessarily have been opened. How did you deal with it? Well, I'm making an assumption that at some stages you were going, I'm going to be good at this. You know, I, I, I haven't had an experience in, cycling, in, in in Olympic cycling. How did you deal with that sort of doubt? Yeah, and to be honest, I am someone who suffers self-doubt a lot. I'm not one of those kind of real brash, in-your-face sprinter athletes by any means. You know, even these days, I, I do doubt myself often. Um, and so there were plenty of them in the early days trying a new sport, you know, the there was so so few guarantees um, that there was ever going to be any success. But one thing I, I kind of learned, I think I've learned through sport sort of intuitively. Um, and looking back now, I kind of realize is that self-talk was something I did a lot. Um, it's something used very widely within sport. So it's that kind of inner monologue that you might have throughout the course of the day. And believe it or not, you know, I've learned since you have somewhere between 60 and 80,000 individual thoughts every single day, which is, wow. is immense. And, it you know, immense. a lot of that is, is rubbish. Of course it is. Um, some really great, great thoughts. Some of us have more than others, of course, but, um, you know, there's a lot of negative and, and stuff that you really don't need to hold on to. Um, so I, I think I kind of learned how to channel that stream of, of so many thoughts in a day in a more productive way. And I think there are, in my opinion, there are kind of five types of self-talk that you can have. Um, four of them are beneficial. So there's negative self-talk, which really isn't going to help you much. And that's things like, oh, you know, I can't do this. I'm no good. Um, and that generally will just bring you down. Uh, there's calming self-talk. There's times when you're telling yourself it's going to be all right. You know, everything's going to work out fine. And then you've got instructional, which is that telling yourself what you need to do within the process. One good example of that actually is um, back at the Rio 26 Olympics. It was the um, the goaltender for the GB women's hockey team, Maddie Hinch. She was made quite famous for writing notes on her water bottle during the match. It was, was things to remind herself to say to herself. And one of those was stay big. That was a classic kind of goalkeeper self-talk thing that obviously the bigger you are, yeah. the more likely you are to save. Um, and in the decisive penalty shootout with the four penalties the Dutch took against them, she saved all four. So this kind of instructional self-talk was really beneficial in that situation. Yeah. Um, and then there's the two motivational types. So there's positive motivation where you you know you're saying you can do this, come on, you're you know you've got what it takes. And then there's negative, which goes back a bit to what we're saying about kind of proving them wrong. And you can even do that with yourself. Like, come on, you're better than this. You can, you know. You, you can achieve more if you, if you just need to push yourself, that kind of self-talk. And I learned how to kind of use that in different situations, I think. So when the doubts were coming, I would, I would use what I needed to, whether it be calming, whether it be instructional, or whether it be some form of motivational self-talk. Um, I developed techniques, and over the years, I, I learned a few more tricks of the trade. Um, and one of the, the key things I learned, which was going back to the business world, was looking at big corporations and the kind of advertising slogans they use. They're generally, oh, a lot of them anyway, consist of three words. Um, the reason being that the human brain loves things that come in threes. So three-word slogans are really memorable. Um, so why we like things in threes, you think like um, 
books often come, well, you've got your a beginning, a middle, and an end. Often they're kind of three storylines or three key characters. Even in sport, you've got three people on the podium. For some reason, we just love the number three. And I thought, well, if slogans are catchy and get people's attention, there are three words. Well, how can I utilize this for myself? And I decided that my self-talk should be kind of channeled to having these sayings that were three words long, um, which are you know, different mantras that I use essentially in different situations. And this is something that became pretty powerful. So going back to working towards London 2012, realizing that was my big end goal, I decided that was going to be my mantra was London 2012. Three words that I would say to myself when I was having those doubts that reminded me why I was doing what I was doing um, and helped me kind of get over those and a point of single focus, the ult- your, your ultimate yeah. dream, you know, the big hairy audacious goal. Yeah, exactly. And regardless of the situation, that snaps you back into focus. That yeah, this is what this it's is, about. Yeah, exactly. Um, and at that point, you think, well, if I lose out and I don't make it, you know, there is that element. I've, I've tried and I've, I've pushed as best I can. So I'm. This is very different to sitting at home and watching and thinking, what could have been. So that that has been the most powerful thing I think in my career to date. Hey, Gavin here. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this mini-series within the Business Mastermind podcast entitled Keep Your Boat Afloat, Business Survival Guide in COVID-19 Times. If you're getting value from this, please do share it across your social media networks and to your business colleagues and acquaintances because I've gone out and got a number of guests lined up that will really help such as the MD of the British Business Bank, a business disaster planning specialist, people around marketing and around mindset at this crucial time, including an Olympic athlete. So there's some really fantastic and really high caliber content coming your way designed to help and support you through these challenging times. I've also put together a PDF entitled the same, Keep Your Boat Afloat, a business survival guide during COVID-19 times. You can get that free at bit.ly, keep your boat afloat. So you go to this link, bit or this URL, sorry, bit.ly forward slash keep your boat afloat, all lowercase, all one word, bit.ly forward slash keep your boat afloat. I cover eight areas around employees, cash strategies, the supply to your business, suppliers, your customers, pivot and adapt, your marketing, your mindset, and your community. You'll get a lot of value from that as well in support of, in addition to what you'll find listening to this mini-series, Keep Your Boat Afloat. So that URL again, bit.ly forward slash keep your boat afloat. And most of all, take care and look after those closest to you. And I wanted to just dive into... um, the, the the instructional self talk because there are the, the whether you speak in the th- I'm intrigued by whether you speak in the first person or the third person so I'll give you an example and it could be uh, you could say to yourself you know I can do this or you could say you can do this or you could say Neil you got this you know, you got this I've got a friend of mine who's a, a peer in a in a different uh, sector but he was all, he, he's like as a as an external third person saying to him Patrick right you need to do this now. And that's not the way my self-talk works. I'll say, I can do this. And I, I just be intrigued for you. I know it's different for different people. Have you played around with that or found one to be more effective than the other? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting, particularly with when I go to negative motivational self-talk, I go third person. So I'm almost accusing myself from right. a distance from another perspective of, of yeah. not being good enough, calling myself names, all sorts of things, you know, whatever yeah. it takes. 
Um, whereas I guess when it comes to the more instructional stuff, I think I'm, I'm probably more a first person in that, that kind of scenario of knowing what I need to do. So I, I use a lot of the instructional stuff during, um, well, I tell myself before a race, but even during a race, my, my race, the one kilometer time trial takes approximately a minute. Right. And a lot of that time, your brain's not working very well, but you, you know, cause it's all the blood's being channeled to your muscles. You kind of switch off mentally to an extent, but there is these little glimpses of thought and it's just having little sayings at those points to remind myself of what I need to do. And I've got a lot of these three word sayings that are instructional in those situations. And, um, it's Which amazing. ones did you find to be the most effective mantras? Um, I find kind of more positive ones and almost ones that cross many boundaries of the different types of self-talk work well. So for me, London 2012 one was obviously quite a positive motivational thing. Um, in recent years, I've actually gone to, to a different one. So in cycling, when you become a world champion, you, you get presented with a jersey that has five stripes on it. Um, yeah. It's called the Rainbow Stripes. So I developed a mantra for winning the world champs and many, many different years I've done this where I say, earn your stripes. And that became my real go-to phrase. Uh, and that in some ways kind of crosses being a negative motivator as well, because when you're struggling in a session, you say like, oh, come on, earn your stripes. Yeah, yeah. Again, that just fires you up. I think, right, yes, yes, I need to push on. Um, and that's become my, my catchphrase for myself that I think covers most things. Um it's slightly different with instructional, obviously. That goes down to more technical aspects of the race. Sure. Um, so elements I need to do, like attack the start. Another one is strong and smooth, which is to do with my pedal stroke towards the end of the race. But that kind of real emotional drive ones, like the Earn Your Stripes, London 2012, I think are the, the most powerful ones that I, I think you need that are more aligned to your end goal at the end of the day. Um, and so much so with the Earn Your Stripes one that I've now named a, a book that's coming out and uh, fairly soon as well with that title and that's become my, my catchphrase for everything I do now. I love that and for the uh, the performance coaching you've done in business have you worked with people for them to develop their own three-word mantras and can you share some examples of what people have found to be effective? Yeah it's um, I mean it's quite varied and again it's very dependent on goals um, so there was a, a, a company that I worked in in the law industry who were looking at kind of achieving a balance, uh, gender balance within their workforce because they felt like that was something that was really going to well, be something they should be doing and something that would be beneficial for business. And so in order to balance it out, they needed 23 uh, female employees and their expectation was to get there by 2023, I think. So it became 23 in 23, which is Great. actually a few more words, but I kind of thought hyphenate them for their sake. They, they like that, so that's fine. Great. Um but yeah, just again, it's, it's finding something, a common uh, end goal for everyone that they can all buy into. And I've tried employing it as well within kind of my wider team now. So it's not just me, but so we're, we're all kind of back to sport here. But when we're aiming for something, trying to get everyone else to buy in now as well. And it, it can be a bit trickier to get a, a group buy in than an individual, of course. But if you can find it, then having one of these things that are, whether it's up on the wall or just something that people say around the office to remind themselves to that's what they need to be doing, then they can be incredibly effective. Fantastic. Um, in terms of your visual impairment, and, and and it's obviously common knowledge that other senses pick up for when one sense is compromised. How has that helped you with your cycling? Yeah, good question, actually. And as far as the other senses picking up, I'm always a bit miffed because my hearing doesn't ever seem like good. And I feel like, I, yeah, I've got to get a break somewhere. But um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's an interesting one. I think the biggest thing I probably got from the visual impairment is 
a problem solving skill. So it's right. a I'll try again, a degenerative condition. Yeah. So when I was young, it, it wasn't particularly noticeable and it was something I kind of hid from, from friends and things that I guess I'm almost from that era of where it was something you would hide was your disability, which is, has changed these days. And it, you know, having, having disabilities quite like it is something unique that makes me a bit different to everyone else, but I didn't have to adapt particularly in those days. But as I went through my school life, um, my vision got gradually less and less. And so I had to learn of new ways to, to see the board, to like, how was I going to be in a class environment and still be able to learn? Um, and again, that grew and grew through university and, and now into life where I, I can't really read text on, on any paper anymore. So I've had to keep adapting and, and finding different ways. And so initially that was sitting closer to the board at school. And then it was getting large print text for exams and things as I went through. And then it became using technology and finding different different tools to, to kind of help me through it. And I think I've used that throughout my sporting career to to kind of look at things from that different perspective of well, how are we going to achieve this? And, um, you know, it's problem solving. Sometimes it's hard to see things from that perspective. I think you you kind of buy into whatever you're doing and you're so focused on the way we've always done it um, that you don't look outside the box at all on, on how to approach it. So that's been great for me. Um, and equally, I think being able to trust someone else essentially with my life on the bike um, who's doing the steering when we're traveling it. For sure. Over well, over seventy kilometers per hour. Wow. Um, it's a lot of faith you have to have in someone else. So I guess I've I've just learned through my other senses to be hyper aware of what's going on, but equally develop that trust from you know any times I have been guided by other people and things as well. That you, you start to have to place your trust in other people. It's not for everyone. I, I appreciate traveling at those sort of speeds with uh, with very little in the way of protective clothing on and, and no control of where you're going, but <laughs> something <laughs> I enjoy. Yeah, and presumably your, your, your set, your spatial awareness, your feeling connection with the bike and the track and uh, how in sync you are with the pilot, that must be highly, highly attuned for you, Neil. Yeah, so I mean, the worst thing you can do when you're in a race, so one of my events is the sprint where you've got two bikes on track together racing head to head. So the last thing you want to do is have like my pilot shouting to me attack or whatever, because our opponents will hear it as well. And it's just a complete waste of time. You know, they'll know exactly what we're doing. So can't really have audible cues. So it has to be through feel of the pedals. So our pedals are linked by a link chain, which means right. when one person pushes on the bike, the other one can feel it, but it's quite a subtle difference between let's say 70% power and, and ramping it up to, to 80 or 90 in a race. So you have to really become attuned to those subtle differences and what your pilot's doing, how they're going to move the bike around the track, because, um, you know, it can be quite sharp changes of direction. And if I'm off balance, I, I knock the whole bike off balance. So you have to very much be aware of where the other bike is on track, even though you can't see it. Um, I can't generally tell where they are, but I've got this sort of understanding of, by what we're doing, where they probably are, where we need to attack. And you just kind of develop that over time. It, it does take a lot of getting used to someone else. And again, trust and it's that real teamwork though, of working together, just spending time together to get to know each other and, and then knowing how we ride the bike, how, how we complement each other. Um, and yeah, it, you, you know, it's one of those skills, I guess I've picked up without ever really realizing that real awareness of what's going on around me and those kind of real high stakes split second decisions that are going on i want to go back to um your earlier comment about um always having to adapt having to adapt how 
you, you went through bigger print or how you looked at the board and, and then technology and looking at things from a different perspective. Um, it was because you were always used to an adept. I find it interesting that you were always adept at finding a different way of achieving an objective that you were able to make the leap from track to, you know, to, 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 to from running to, to, to the cycling discipline because you were so adept at finding a different way of achieving the same goal. And then if we take the translate that back to business and the current times that we're in right now, um, the pathway that many had foreseen to be the way to achieving their business goal has now been completely changed and eradicated. Can you give some tips and help? Because you've developed this to a fine art of being able to look at things from a different perspective to solve problems. Can you give some some tips and some ideas to help people to look at things you know, when the world has changed all around you, when you've literally got to change discipline, change lanes, whatever analogy you're going to use, to help people to be able to do that and see a different way. Yeah, and, you know, first and foremost, it's that when it comes to that planning phase, you've obviously got that end goal in mind and it's realising that your plan isn't rigid and it can't be rigid in these situations. You know, these big impacts happen um, and that's when your plan becomes more of a strategy that you realise that, you know, it's, it's evolving. It's an always evolving thing, your plan. Um, and that's something I think it's almost a forced reflection at these times, but it's something we're very big on is, is having these reflection periods. So after most training sessions, certainly after every race, we have these debriefs as teams where we sit down, we discuss what were we trying to do? What did we achieve? You know, what do we, what can we improve? Um, what do we keep, want to keep doing in the future? These sort of debriefs that shape what we're then going to do. And more importantly, I think, is looking sometimes to people who are on the outside and bringing them in for their opinions who are not involved necessarily as heavily as you are because when you're in it and often in sport, we are very much in it and we, we just yeah. don't see the big picture. Um, yeah. And so you just keep doing the things you've been doing because you think that's the way to go and you can't see this glaringly obvious thing that's staring you in the face of what you could be doing, but someone who possibly knows nothing about cycling or whatever it may be can just say, well, have you tried this? And they might think it's a throwaway comment, but it could be an absolute groundbreaking thing. Um, and for me, actually going back to the story I told before about the um, losing my funding from athletics and starting cycling, uh, one, one bit I omit, omitted from the story was while I was in Beijing, there was a member of Paralympic support staff who, who just kind of was helping with the running of, of the team. He said, ah, you know what, Neil, you'd look, I think you'd be pretty handy in the back of a tandem. And at the time, I kind of laughed it off. And it wasn't until I was involved in cycling or thinking about sports that that kind of popped up again. I thought, actually, you know uh, what? That's really that's really something. Um, again, that external perspective, somebody else giving sowing a seed or looking at things from a different point of view to give you a, what became the, the, the route to achieve your ultimate goal. Precisely. And again, it, it seemed like such a throwaway little comment, but sure, yeah. just these things you can pick up on and get others' perspectives. And by no means does this mean you should listen to F1 and, and follow F1's advice, but if you can find little gems out there, then yeah, it's definitely worth speaking to people in different industries. And like say, or that's crossover sport and business, these sort of things are, it's amazing how we all look at problems in different ways. And yeah, there, there are plenty of gems out there to be had. So for people uh, grappling with where next, how on earth they're going to deal with this, who are looking at understandably worst case scenarios and trying to plan around, um, is there a practice that you've used that helps calm your mind to help to get to think clearer through challenging times like this? Yeah, I mean, one of the, the key things I do use 
Um, and again, this was something I was never taught, but I think just inherently learned was visualization techniques. Yeah. Um, something very much used in sport again, to the point where I think we all learn without realizing that I was so in love with sport as a child. I spent much of my time at school daydreaming as I called it then, but yeah. I was actually, actually visualizing myself sure. running and performing, Absolutely. you know? Yeah. And then I'd go to the athletics track in the evening and lo and behold, some of those things I was imagining myself doing, I suddenly I might be able to do. Um, and it's oh, yeah. this idea that you're, you're putting your, your brain logically through the process of doing something, you're almost training yourself for it. So when the occasion comes that there, some of those triggers are already in place and it's, it's not necessarily second nature, but you're, you're one step closer, you know? So in the run up to big events, um, I mean, I want to be psyched up as possible come the moment I race, but two to three days beforehand, the last thing I want to do is be all kind of revved up and ready to go and not able to sleep or anything. Oh, right. Okay. So I guess that's when the calming things come in where I'll visualize far more, you know, sometimes it's particularly at Paralympic games, it's almost impossible to sleep because you're thinking about this huge moment that's coming two days time. Like you wake up at two in the morning and suddenly you're, you find yourself your adrenaline's going, you're, you're ready to go right there. And then it's the last thing you need. You need your sleep, of course, as an course, athlete. Yeah, so yeah. it was kind of finding these techniques of, you know, when it's stressful, um, just picturing yourself somewhere relaxing, somewhere calming, wherever that may be for you. And kind of that mindfulness approach, almost of focusing on your breathing, those sorts of things, which often I kind of thought were, were almost a bit silly, um, and a bit out there. And then I realized it was actually stuff I was doing anyway. Um, and you know, particularly just to calm myself down, keep it on a nice level playing field. And then when it comes to race day, I switch that visualization to visualizing my performance, the things I need to be doing, um, those key components of my race. And I picture the whole race and my heart rate, this is quite common, I believe accelerates to the point it would as though I was actually doing the race. Um, and just by, you know, they say that, um, is it 10,000 hours? I believe of practice right. makes, yeah. makes someone yeah. perfect, you know? Yeah. And although I've probably not ridden for, for 10,000 hours in race mode, the amount you actually visualize you're clocking it up, clocking it up all that time of, of doing the things you need to do in your head. And, um, it is amazing how effective it can be. So, going so back you run to, your, how you run your whole game plan through in your visualization about how yeah. you're going to, 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 to run the race. Yeah. Cycle race. Exactly. And I'll do that before, many training efforts as well. Things I need to do in the gym, if it's quite a technical lift or something, kind of thinking your way through it before you do it just gives you that, that foot up. So, um, there's a lot in visualization and it can be used in many different ways. Um, but yeah, obviously in the, these kind of times when things are, are stressful, you don't want to be switched on all the time, but that stress can be useful at times as well as a, a real motivator to get things done. So it's kind of picking your moments when you need that drive when you can kind of quell it a little bit and let yourself just switch off and recharge for next time. And, you know, some obvious points really is that the shift that you made of sports, you didn't do that alone. Obviously you were part of a team, you, you a team that was wider than just you and your pilot, of course. Um, all of those right now are still as are, are, are pertinent in business, aren't they? That you, you're not going to see things from a different perspective and necessarily on your own. You're going to need to collaborate with other people maybe even collaborate with uh, organizations and businesses that you might have seen as com previously seen as a competition. But um, it's about yeah. working together as a team. And I think it's, a, it's also a, an opportunity where 
collaboration community will really come to the fore. No, definitely. And these sort of times when you have these these big lows, and let's yeah. face it, there are going to be a lot of lows in business in the coming months, I'm sure. For sure. But that's the uh, the point where those who have what it takes essentially to, to reinvent, to reinvigorate and find an alternative will, as you put it, thrive. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it takes those, those big moments to make that real change that will have, have a lasting effect. Um, I was kind of a mediocre athlete who wasn't really going anywhere till that big low was enforced upon me. Um, at the time I was, I was so furious with British athletics for getting rid of me, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me without a doubt. So there is possible that good things can come out of this in the long run. I mean, it's of course a terrible thing. Um, there's a lot of mess and of course there, there's a lot of illness and death, which is, is never good, but you know, I'm sure we're going to see some real changes globally, but how, how we do business, how we, well, run supermarkets for one thing, um, <laughs> you know, it's, some things have to change, don't they? And, Absolutely. and hopefully this will, this will bring it upon us. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be real interesting times, I think in the next year or two. And, and those who want to, want to find that alternative method, want to find, uh, whether it's collaborating with others, taking a slightly different approach. Yeah. I think, um, it's exciting times coming. Yeah, for sure. Neil, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. I know you've had a day packed with uh, interviews, both podcast and radio. So thank you so much for your time. If people want to find out more about you, um, you want to find out more about your upcoming book and your stripes, how do they do that? Well, firstly, you can follow me on social media at Neil Fahey on pretty much all all social channels. Uh, the book, Earn Your Stripes, um, the website is almost complete. Hopefully it'll be up and running. Well, it is up and running, but it's not fully functional yet. So don't don't send in your, your complaints, but earn-your-stripes.co.uk. Uh, book should be launched at some point this summer. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll see more of you earning your stripes soon as well. And I think in the current climate, there's, uh, you know, both the negative and the positive side where everybody's <laughs> going to have to earn the stripes, both in business, uh, you know, and outside of business. Neil, a real pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Business Mastermind podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate and review so that more people like you can get their business back on their own terms, enjoy more success and create more impact.